It's Greg, the Ski Physical Therapist, back with another episode of the Legacy Podcast, where this week we're continuing with the topic of orthopedic injuries and interviewing another orthopedic surgeon. This time, Dr. Nick Kennedy, who is actually a friend of mine, will be answering the questions that you guys submitted about the most common ski injuries and what you can do about them. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I personally learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. The knee being the number one place of injury for a lot of skiers, I thought it would be really special to bring him on to help answer a bunch of questions. And a lot of the questions that we're going to go over today are actually questions that I asked on my Instagram story. So if you uh, responded to that, you should be able to find a lot of answers to those today. So yeah, Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. I just want to give the listeners a chance um, to get to know who you are. So if you could just introduce yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Greg. This is uh, this is fun. Get a chance to chat with you and then you know, answer some fun questions and uh, try and be as thorough as possible for your audience. Uh, got a little bit of background on me. Obviously, you and I went to school together back at the U uh, many, many moons ago. I then did uh, some research at a place called the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado, which was a which was a fun year. Didn't ski because I myself had a multi-ligament knee injury like a week before ski season opened playing flag football. So that's unfortunate. Uh, but obviously kind of going through the experience of a patient taught me a lot about, uh, how to be a compassionate provider for sure. Uh, went on from there and did med school at Oregon, OHSU in Portland, uh, then did residency for orthopedics at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, you're, you're sensing a very cold theme here, you know, Vail, then Mayo. Um, and then did a fellowship where I worked with the Vikings and the twins at, uh, Twin City Orthopedics and trained under Dr. LaProd, who's a knee specialist. Uh, and then now I'm starting practice in Yakima. And like I said, only seeing knee pathology, which is fantastic. It's, I think it's the best joint in the body. That's amazing. Yeah. And having someone that specializes, you see a lot of very unique cases. So that's why I'm super happy to bring you on and just have your in-depth knowledge of maybe some of these more complex knee cases that um, people are talking about. Um, but yeah, I just want to kind of get into it. We're going to break down this podcast episode into uh, different um, various diagnoses that people have submitted questions for. Um, and the first one, we're just going to start off with the meniscus. So um, the first question is, this client has been having knee pain on the anterior lateral aspect of the knee for quite some time. They had a meniscal repair and the pain uh, hasn't gone away. Um, is there anything diagnostically they can do in addition to what they've been doing with physical therapy when the MRI comes back clean, even though they're still having re uh, reproducible pain clinically? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough question, Greg. Uh, honestly, that's something that we're continuing to evolve in terms of how we uh, analyze or assess meniscal repair success, right? Because once you put sutures in the joint, the artifact always shows up on MRI. So remember, I mean, MRI, we won't go into a whole you know, lesson plan on that. It's a little, little too complex to get into, but it's not the most uh, objective exam out there. And there's a lot of subjectivity in terms of reading whether there's a tear or not. All we can see is, is there signal where there shouldn't be? And signal should be fluid or disruption in a type of structure, right? So signal within the meniscus should be a tear. But once you've had a repair, you have signal, right? You have signal from the sutures themselves, uh, sometimes they've left behind kind of track marks where it's gone through meniscus and out the knee if you did something called an inside-out repair. So it's it's reliably um, unpredictive of, of a new tear. Seven months is what we talked about, right? I mean, whether somebody's having some soreness and some effusion still at seven months, I wouldn't say is outside the norm necessarily, especially depending on the repair they had. If they had a big bucket handle or you know something called a root or a radial tear and it required, say, five-plus sutures, um, but if they're continuing to get effusions after six months, my alarm bells go off a little bit. And at that point in time, it may be worthwhile to consider, uh, you know, either a repeat MRI if they haven't had one recently or a, a diagnostic arthroscopy is actually the gold standard. So going back in, taking a peek, because that gives, you know, pictures worth a thousand words uh, and then determining whether there's something that needs to be done at the time versus, you know, just needs more time to, to recover. Yeah. Uh, one question for the diagnostic um, arthroscopy. Is there a like recovery time after that? Like what can someone expect? So say like we're in ski season and they want to be able to continue to ski. Like what is the recovery period for that? Um, if someone were to go in, say they have a trip coming up and they want to make sure they're still able to go on that trip. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, would depend a lot on what was done. Right. So now uh, nowadays we do have you know, some of us out there, including myself, we offer something called an in-office arthroscope. 
which is much smaller than a normal scope and you don't go to sleep for it. So it's the size of like the ball, the tip of a ballpoint pen or a needle almost. And you stick that in the joint and then you're able to just look. So if we saw a tear, we couldn't fix it, but at least we know what's going on. So it's purely diagnostic. The old school traditional way would be to go to sleep, go to sleep, drive around, and then your recovery totally depends on are you fixing the new tear if it's there or if there's nothing there, then it's much quicker. If you do nothing, they could be back hopefully skiing within four to six weeks, just depending on how much they swell. But obviously, if you do a repair, you're talking about starting the six-month clock all over. Now, if someone has a repair and the tissue looks clean, will you go and repair that again, knowing that the tissue failed? Or is that usually a case for meniscectomy and clipping it out or a different procedure? Yeah, I took it uh, again. <laughs> I wish there was like a straight answer on some of these. The meniscal work is very subjective and surgeon dependent. A lot of surgeons still, uh, you know, cut out a lot of tears that are quote unquote white, white. Uh, and again, without getting too much in the weeds, the meniscus is broken into the outermost portion is red, red, very good vascular supply. Inside or the middle portion is red, white, which means it's fairly well vascularized, but not great. And the inside portion is almost completely devascular, white, white. When you tear white, white tear, the traditional treatment was cut out because it doesn't heal. The more literature we're getting now, when you do some sort of healing stimulation, whether it's a marrow stimulation or putting your own blood or PRP back into the uh, tear itself, you can get some healing. So some physicians are really aggressive. They'll keep repairing time and time again, because, you know, once you've lost that meniscus, it's a done deal. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Now, I know amongst uh, like rehab, there's candidates that need to go to surgery. There's candidates that don't need to go to surgery. Um, when candidates do go to surgery, there's a difference between like meniscal repair, meniscectomy, and meniscus transplant. Can you talk about like the difference of those and maybe like what would classify someone to uh, have a repair versus a meniscectomy versus a transplant? Sure. Um, again, I'll, I'll just speak for myself because again, this is something that we continue to debate like within our own like orthopedic surgical community. I'm probably repairing now north of 90% of the, the tears I see, particularly in younger patients. If you're if you're less than 40 years of age and you have a repair that's or a tear, excuse me, that's somewhat acute in nature, i.e., you describe I was skiing, I had an injury, I was golfing, I had an injury, basketball, what have you. I'm trying to repair that probably almost no matter what it looks like. If I can get it together with suture, I'm gonna give it a try at least once. Um, if you're older, it's degenerative. So if instead the patient comes in and tells you more of a chronic story like, oh, you know, I've had pain for three years and I don't know exactly when it started. And then you see this tear, uh, you know, those tend to be less repairable. And so I'm a little bit more uh, pro cutting those out, treating the mechanical symptoms that are coming with them. Uh, and then your meniscal transplant population is like a completely different population. Those are patients that have lost the entirety of their meniscus uh, and they have to have a lot of other things come in in line, right? They have to be uh, straight or neutrally aligned. They can't be bow-legged or knock-kneed to really do well with that. Their cartilage has to be pretty pristine and it's got to be just an isolated meniscal deficiency. So I think we're finding more and more that there's not a lot of indications for a meniscal transplant in today's day and age because they don't do well when you don't do them for the right reason. And it's a huge recovery. Mm. When you talk about huge recovery, are you talking like uh, months? Uh, yeah, you're six, you're minimum six weeks non-weight-bearing for a meniscal transplant. Uh, some people would say eight to 10. Uh, even then, you need, you know, getting an allograft tissue inside the joint, which again, like we talked about, is not very vascular, to reincorporate uh, in terms of forming new collagen can take anywhere from six months to a year. So probably at a minimum, before you're being cleared to do like skiing for your audience, six months, but probably much closer to nine in, in a transplant patient. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now there's so many different types of meniscal tears, but I think one of the meniscal tears in general that is uh, kind of raises a yellow flag would be the meniscal root tear. Can you kind of talk about like what, what is a meniscal root tear? And if someone tears their meniscal root or they get a diagnosis of that, like what steps should they take after that? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you, you broke it down really well. There's, there's, three main classes to think about with meniscal tears. There's one that's called longitudinal, which means basically it's torn in the same directionality of the C-shaped meniscus. So kind of in line with it. There's another one that's called horizontal, which would be, I call it like the pita pit tear. Like you tear it in, in the middle and then you have a top half and a bottom half. And then there's a radial tear where you, you cut the meniscus into two pieces. And a root tear is a type of radial tear, specifically where the meniscus anchors down to bone. 
So just like trees have roots is the analogy I use. If the tree were to, you know, lose its roots and completely be avulsed in a storm, that's like what a root tear does to a meniscus. And then just like a tree would be completely non-functional, the meniscus is completely non-functional after a root tear. So all of its ability to disperse force, protect your cartilage, give you a normal knee is gone. So the, they've done biomechanical studies that show a root tear is the equivalent to having zero meniscus. So uh, what you, your patient should do is if they have concerns for one, you know, getting in and getting seen as soon as possible because you can start getting arthritis actually quite quickly. And then secondly, if they have the diagnosis of one, I would recommend, particularly if they have, if they're younger, if they have good cartilage, if they don't have end-stage arthritis, surgery is almost always indicated in those instances because your likelihood of going from a relatively normal knee to end-stage arthritis in five years is north of 50%. Oh, wow, that's quite significant. Yeah, so definitely like getting in and getting that checked it out yeah. sooner rather than later is super critical. For sure. Um, those are the main questions we had for meniscus. Um, and the next topic um, that people wanted to know about was the patella. So the kneecap or the patella tendon. So actually the patella tendon is one of the most common, I would say, injuries amongst skiers. Maybe not necessarily complete tears, but tendonitis. Um, just because skiing itself is a, a heavy eccentrically biased uh, activity meaning that you're going to put a lot of stress through the tendon. So say someone's gone through conservative management, they've gone through physical therapy, and despite a lot of that eccentric loading, trying to get the tendon stronger, they're still having like issues. What are there, are there any orthopedic interventions that they, they can do to help strengthen that tendon or improve their uh, prognosis for recovery? Yeah, yeah. Um, so starting from kind of least invasive to most invasive, there was some excitement for a while about just injections of PRP, uh, you know, some 10X style treatment, like you said, eccentric loading in combination with, uh, with a PRP injection or some sort of a biologic healing stimulant. I'd say that actually in the last year, now we have enough kind of retrospective systematic reviews to say that it's more like flipping a coin. There's, it's not very predictive that that's going to do well. Uh, surgical standpoint is, is all dependent on how much of the tendon is abnormal or has the tendonitis, right? Anything less than 50%, usually we can just cut out the part that hurts and actually patients do quite well. You cut it out, you either repair the little defect that you've left or actually you leave it because, you know, we harvest the central third of the tendon when we do a patellar tendon ACL. So you can lose up to a third and, and again, data studies would say up to 50% and it doesn't affect the strength. Um, but if it's more than 50%, that's when it gets into a bigger surgery. So some sort of a repair, usually plus or minus augmenting it, say taking a piece of your hamstring and weaving it into your patellar tendon to, to bolster it. Gotcha. Um, I know we'll probably get into this a little bit later when we're talking about ACL reconstruction. Um, but a lot of the people that have a patella graft for ACL complain of like patella type pain, um, even though maybe they only take a third of third of that patella out of um, the tissue. Is there a, a particular population, maybe you would say that should opt for a different tissue or maybe even an allograft compared to taking an autograft patella? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's always like you know, Robin Peter to pay Paul a little bit, right? It's a, it's a tough answer. The, the book answer would be the lowest rate of re-tearing your ACL uh, significantly is to take your own patellar tendon pretty much across the board. I mean, we even are taking patellar tendons in patients, 50s, 60s with ACLs. If they have no significant patellar tendonitis, they're fairly healthy. That's still a good graft option. If you're worried about them, you know, for some reason that a big skin incision concerns you or the morbidity of the procedure again, in your older population is concerning. That's one, that's one indicator to potentially use something else to maybe use an allograft like your 65 year old patient that tore their ACL really wants to have it reconstructed in their skier. That's a potential um, candidate. The main ones I think about actually are that you're skeletally immature. So if you haven't fused your growth plates yet, we can't take the patellar tendon because we can lead to growth plate abnormalities. So in that instance, we use something else, either hamstring, uh, sometimes quadriceps and, and very rarely like a repair or an allograft. Got it. Got it. Well, cool. I think as far as the patella goes, that was all the questions we have. You know, there's a lot more in terms of the patella that we can talk about, um, like patella dislocation. Um, and we can go down a whole rabbit hole with that. And maybe we'll have to get Nick on another episode as we get more questions in and as people listen to this one. But uh, the next topic that people were 
interested in is like tibial fibular fractures. Um, and um, in particular, like I actually see a lot of tib plateau fractures amongst skiers, whether that's they're hitting a tree or just the, the force that goes through the leg um, that causes the tibial plateau to fracture um, as they're coming down and landing on that bone. Um, this particular question was asking, after having the tibial plateau repaired, is it worth it to have the hardware removed um, versus the uh, con of potentially developing osteoarthritis in the long in the long term? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we I would say leaving the hardware versus taking it out won't affect your long term prognosis pretty much at all. It it may affect you know if, if you have some pain from where the screw you can feel the screws then that sometimes it's nice to take the hardware out and if you're outside of a year from a bony healing standpoint shouldn't be any type of uh, downside to taking out the hardware other than the risk of infection with any surgery. Um, but in general, the, the thing with plateaus that probably gets overlooked a lot of the time is orthopedic surgeons, you know, we're simplistic beings and we always address the thing that is the most uh, damaged first. So when you've had a bad tibia fracture, we're more worried about fixing the tibia than we are worried about what your ligaments look like, what your meniscus looks like. So oftentimes, Patients recover from the fracture and they're still, you know, their x-rays look fantastic, but they still have a lot of knee pain. And it's because there's no MRI, there's nothing that really assessed what was going on inside the joint. And they've got a meniscal tear, a torn ligament that wasn't appreciated because we were dealing with one thing at a time. We were dealing with the bone first. So that's, I would say the thing that affects your long-term osteoarthritis prognosis the most is getting a good reduction on the fracture, but then not missing other injuries more so than the hardware. Got it. Got it. And then what about like, say someone has pain after a tib-fib fracture, and oftentimes it can almost be like right where the cuff of the boot um, like has, uh, has stopped and that's where they'll fracture. Say they're getting back to skiing, their bone looks like it's strong, but they're still having a lot of pain and discomfort from that. Just because the bone um, isn't meant to be loaded horizontally, it's more meant to be loaded in like a compression, decompression type way. Is there any remedy for that that you can think of? Uh, nothing in my, I mean, honestly, that would be something that we would probably send them to you in terms of, um, uh, I would assume some sort of anterior tibialis driven program or just in general uh, strengthening and proprioception would be more helpful than anything else. If they haven't, if they still have the nail in there, if they got a rod, for example, then the rod stress shields. So there's no real risk of fracturing through that rod. I mean, those things are impressive, uh, but I mean, it can definitely lead to pain. So in that instance, I, I think it's usually more of a, dynamic stabilizer issue as opposed to like the static nail and bone issue. Yeah. So in that case, kind of just trying to build up the tissue on dry land, maybe doing a lot of that training, building proprioception. And then ultimately, like if, if the bone, the bone actually has a ton of nerve endings in it. So if you can't control that stress within the boot, maybe you're uh, not ready to go back to skiing as aggressively. So reducing the intensity of the exercises or the type of skiing that you're doing. So that way you can tolerate it and build, allow that bone to build up um, based on the stresses that you're putting into the system. Couldn't, yeah. Couldn't have said it better. I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's jump into arthritis here, specifically osteoarthritis. And I know this is a, a big limiting factor for a lot of the aging population of skiing because they want to continue to do it for a really long time, but um, arthritis or the wearing away of the cartilage can really be a limiting factor. Now, someone, if someone has grade four osteoarthritis, which is pretty severe, almost to the point of like bone replacement, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you need a total knee replacement. But um, what is like some strategies that they can do prior to needing to get the total knee replacement um, if they're coming to see you, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. The one and the, the billion dollar question will be when uh, as more of these options for quote unquote halting or reversing arthritis are being developed, that that's hopefully the something that we'll, you and I will see in our careers. But right now, there's there's honestly not a lot, right? The, the general algorithm for people that are not ready for a total knee replacement, uh, want to keep their own native uh, tissue, and want to stay active is things like, you know, therapists are 90% are of it, right? Therapists in, in good weight, about seven, seven times your body weight is what goes through your knee joint with walking and skiing, jumping, running, it's more like nine times your body weight. So even, you know, 10 pounds of weight fluctuation one way or another is a big, big difference. Uh, so weight management, strengthening exercises, particularly, you know, dynamic stabilizers of the knee that can help to minimize the axial load that, that your tibia, uh, your tibial plateau uh, sees 
with these activities is definitely key. And then from our standpoint, there's things like injections, there's something called hyaluronic acid, which I, I liken to WD-40 of a door hinge, helps to increase the lubrication in the joint. There's something called the corticosteroid, which helps to tell the cells to stop producing so many inflammatory um, reactions and thereby helps with pain because it decreases inflammation. And then there's the biologics like PRP, bone marrow aspirate concentrate, things like that that can be efficacious, but the data would say it's pretty 50-50, at least right now. Uh, the one other thing I would say is traditionally, we tried to push people off for a total knee as long as possible because you know total knee implants could wear the type of plastic, just like anything that has a shelf life. I'd say that today's day and age, the type of metal and plastic we put into total knees, that shelf life, we, we don't know for sure, but it sure looks like from the mechanical testing we can do, it is much superior to what we were putting in 20 years ago. And even the stuff we put in 20 years ago has a 20 year outcome of you know 80 plus percent success. So if you're in a point where you can't do the things that you enjoy to do in life uh, and, and it's severely de you know, debilitating, I don't think a total knee is like a death sentence. And I don't, there's no reason you can't, if you have a good weight and you're nice and strong and you've talked to your surgeon about it, I mean, skiing on a total knee is definitely a reasonable option. It's just not usually the first thing we think of, but it's, again, it's not something that is completely off the table. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I am I'm fully a proponent for getting a total knee if it means you're going to be able to get back to skiing. Now, if you're someone that likes to drop cliffs, ski like really aggressive moguls and take a lot of trauma through the knee, you may have to modify how you're skiing. So that way you can preserve the life of that. But is it worth the sacrifice to modify the way you're skiing so that way you can do it for a lifetime on a total knee? In my opinion, absolutely. So great advice. Um, one other thing that I've heard of, Nick, is the Macy procedure. And um, I was just wondering, can you go into kind of like what that is and maybe for like osteoarthritis, how that may or may not be beneficial? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, simplistically, osteoarthritis is the loss of the normal uh, structures that are within the joint. And that is the cartilage and the meniscus. So it's a degenerative process that unfortunately only goes with one-way traffic. Uh, if you've ever had a chicken wing, the end of a long bone, that shiny part on a chicken wing, that's that's your cartilage. And that's what helps for your joint to move nice and smooth. So the first process is usually localized. You usually don't lose cartilage everywhere all at once. You usually load it in one area due to, or lose it in one area, excuse me, due to excess load, trauma, et cetera. So when we catch it early, when let's say you have, you're a little bit bow-legged and you overload just the inside part of your knee, and you've got one, you've got one area of significant, what we call grade four cartilage loss. Macy's a good is a good option. Uh, Macy is a procedure where we can basically go in and and die and one of those diagnostic scopes. We take a look around, we assess what your cartilage looks like. We harvest about a tic-tac size piece of cartilage that then gets sent to a lab in Boston and broke down to its base uh, cellular molecules. And then we're allowed to regrow type two cartilage, which is the type of cartilage you have uh, on your normal long bones, and then place it on basically a sheet of type three collagen, uh, and then put it back into your knee. So essentially we can regrow your own cartilage. It's, it's not a good procedure for somebody who has end stage arthritis. So somebody that's got arthritis in multiple different locations, it's not a good option, but for focal arthritis, uh, it's definitely a good option. And one that, that I use uh, whenever I can, because it's really the only thing, the only thing out there that does, uh, is able to regrow your own your own type two cells. Now, say someone is going to consider that procedure and they're trying to plan out maybe their activities for the next year. What does the recovery time for something like that look like? So uh, anything cartilage is slow going. Uh, so you have Macy. The other things are something called an osteochondral allograft, where you take a graft from a from a cadaver and you put bone and cartilage into your knee. You can take your own cartilage from other parts of your knee and use it. All those fit into this cartilaginous type procedure. And you're looking at anywhere from uh, six months to a year before you're doing things like skiing. Again, depends on where the lesion is, the size of the lesion, but general rule, you're looking at six plus months. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I always joke around with a lot of my clients. If you figure out a way to regrow your cartilage and get rid of arthritis, that is the billion dollar answer. And let me know or let Nick know and we'll partner with you because <laughs> definitely we help a lot of people and make a lot of money off yeah. it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the, the the number one injury for skiers, ACL. Man, there's there's a lot of research out there, um, and um, I think it's really challenging to understand like what are the mechanisms of tearing an ACL. And there's some good research, at least amongst skiers, for your ability to 
to fall in the right way to reduce your risk of tearing. But, you know, ultimately there can be that, I don't know, that rock under the snow, you can catch an edge. And when, um, when it happens, it happens and it sucks. However, I just want to ask Nick kind of about like the different types of um, rehab, like what can we control and, and um, how can that impact our ability to get back to skiing? So the first question was, um, independent of rehab, like what can we do that's in control of our time for rehab versus like, what can we do, um, for getting back to skiing that's based on rehab? Does that question make sense? So kind of like where should you focus your rehab exercises if you're, if you're short for time or. I would say, well, maybe there's, there's some research out there that like recently I've heard that's like, you shouldn't get back to skiing if, or you shouldn't get back to activity if you're getting back shorter than nine months, just because the graph hasn't had a chance okay, to okay. Yep, yep. be strong enough. Can you kind of speak to that? And what are your thoughts? Yep. Based on what the research says. So again, this it, like anything, everything's constantly evolving. I mean, I think we used to just basically wave our hands and say, go back in six months. Uh, and then we started to say, well, it's based on your quad strength and a few other measures and then six months. And then there was actually some great uh, research out of Pittsburgh by the late Freddie Fu, who basically broke down what the collagenous uh, structure of an ACL graft looks like at six, nine, 12 months. And really, the, that graft is continuing to mature well beyond 12 months. It's, it's really not full, final mature till probably closer to 15 months to two years. But no athlete or, or skier is going to take two years off, right? So we try and like optimize your risk profile with a combination of things. In general, most of us are saying nine to 12 months for contact athletes or skiers at this point in time, because those are the, what we call high-risk activities. Knowing that your graft isn't fully collagenized at that point, but it's pretty darn mature. And then we have some objective measurements in terms of strength. A lot of people care about quad strength and what's called limb symmetry index, or how strong is your affected quad compared to your other side. I personally am a proponent, not just of quad, because I think that's a little bit too simplistic. Your quad really can be a risk factor for an ACL tear a lot of times. So I care a lot about what your quad to hamstring and what your quad to quad to glute ratio is as well. So your hip extensors are a huge uh, proponent of protecting your knee. And the more load you can put through your hip and through your hip extensors, the less then is being acquired by your knee and, and the less risk you have of re-tear. I love that. Yeah, I love that approach. That's something that uh, I'll look at quad to ham. I never thought about looking at quad to glute. But on top of that, I think th there's no gold standard for returning someone back to sport because each sport is different and what you're going to experience in sport is different. Now for skiing in particular, a functional test that I really like to do is like the eccentric forward drop down on a single leg um, and doing it forward and sideways because that's what you're going to encounter on the ski hill. And you can have, like Nick was saying, you can have a 90% limb symmetry index from your right to your left of your quad. But if you land and your knee is just all over the place and you're not controlling it, I'm not clearing you to go back to the ski hill because when you do that over and over and over, especially when you're fatigued, you're just going to be at risk for retear. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you hit the nail on the head. I think those dynamic landing tests are key, right? So when people tend to land in dynamic valgus specifically, i.e. their knees want to knock together or touch together when they land, that's the position that your ACLs at a lot of risk. And skiers obviously have that every time that, you know, coming off a of mogul, they're trying to land. So, working with you guys and the ability to really keep good control or good proprioceptive control of their knee in space. So it doesn't want to do that kind of little curtsy inwards is, is key to prevent an injury. Yeah. And I just want to add to that. Like oftentimes when you get tested in the PT clinic for return to sport, you have to think you're testing that when your legs are fresh. However, people don't tear their legs or their ACL generally on the first run, it's always the last run of the day where they tore their ACL when they're fatigued. So if you're going to go through a clearing protocol, trying to do a like fatigue test, maybe where you're like running on the treadmill or like doing Stairmaster till your legs are gassed and then doing the drop down is definitely recommended versus just being fresh and, and testing it that way. Or even doing it both ways is I think the gold standard or should be a gold standard moving forward. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, so now there's a ton of different like graft types, meaning the type of replacement that you have for ACL. Um, can you go into all of those, Nick, and maybe like who would be the best to get each one? And obviously that's individual dependent, but what are some various options out there that people can consider? Sure. Um, so we'll start with graft type and then I'll just, I'll allude really quickly to kind of this other thing that a lot of us are doing now, which is called a LET or an anterolateral ligament reconstruction, which I think changes 
uh, graph selection a little bit too. But so the basic graph types are simplistically your own autograph or cadaver allograft, or then of course, neither, which is repair. Uh, when you use your own tissue, you can use something called your patellar tendon, uh, your quadricep tendon, your hamstring tendons, or actually in Japan and some European countries, they use peroneus longus, which is a tendon down near your ankle pretty routinely. Uh, they all have um, benefits. Um, the, uh, the, the benefit of the kind of gold standard one, the patellar tendon, would be that it has bone on both sides. So you're asking bone to heal into bone because you make tunnels where you put these new grafts, and that's probably the most reliable uh, healing uh, in, in terms of final long-term structure and lowest risk of re-rupture, it's probably patellar tendon. The quad is the strongest one if you look at like biomechanical testing and it's soft tissue on one side and bone on the other side. So that's another good option. Uh, and then in my mind, in today's day and age, hamstring in isolation is not my go-to, particularly you know, females tend to have weaker hamstrings that tend to stretch out with time. So I, I personally am leaning more towards patellar tendon and then quad if I'm going to take an autograph. Now, again, this is, there's a lot of different nuance that we look at for this size of the patient, what they want to do thinking about morbidity, but these are just general rules. Um, the repair, to quickly hit on that, because that is probably one of the areas that we've evolved the most on in the last five years. We used to repair ACLs and none of them really did well at all. Uh, the failure rate was kind of unacceptable, north of 20% in a lot of the literature compared to say four to 6% of a patellar tendon. Uh, but that was kind of old techniques, no way to really help the ACL to heal. So there's some new uh, technology available. Most, most notably, there's an implant called the Bear Implant uh, that uh, a surgeon out of Boston kind of pioneered. And what it allows is it's a, it's a collagen-based membrane that you soak in uh, your own autologous blood and kind of like wrap around or mesh with an ACL that you've repaired. So if the ACL has enough good structural integrity that you can put it back or, or sew it together, and then you can cover it in this uh, implant, your healing rates actually are, are pretty darn good. I would say there, that, though, that it's there's a specific type of patient I'm looking for for repair. A pair, they need to have a relatively normal ACL that's either pulled off where it inserted, i.e. the whole ligament looks good, it just kind of pulled off where it anchors down on bone, uh, or you have a young patient that isn't a good candidate for a patellar tendon or a quad because they're you don't want to you know, damage their bone or their growth plates, and so you don't have a lot of good options for them, and so trying a repair with them is really not um, burning any bridges because if they end up failing at the end of the day, you've at least hopefully bought them some time so they're getting towards skeletal maturity. So those are kind of my repair candidates. And then just lastly, briefly to hit on it, because I'm sure a lot of people have heard about it. Your audience is pretty, you know, well-read and well-versed. Something called your anterolateral ligament, which is an outside structural or, or rotatory control for the knee. And speaking of your dynamic valgus test that you talked about and getting people to land one-sided, our tibia always wants to internally rotate, particularly after we've torn that ligament. So if you just do the ACL in isolation, you don't really fully address that rotational instability. And that rotational instability can put you at risk for retiring the ACL. So a lot of us now do this, this extra surgery, which is a little incision over the outside of your knee, to bolster that rotational control. And I think we don't have a lot of great literature on that yet, but it would make sense that if you control that rotational stability, maybe the graft type you use doesn't matter quite as much because now you're kind of you're taking out the rotational control and then the ACL graph really is mainly a function of A to P and all the graphs do a pretty good job of that. Hmm, that's very interesting. I, um, I didn't think about that as like the rotary component. Um, yes, this particular at the knee, um, a lot of that can be the lack of eccentric control at the ankle from what I've seen, uh, specifically eccentric control of pronation, meaning like the foot collapse or going foot flat. Um, but yeah, if you've done everything you can to like work on controlling that foot into pronation and you're still having that then, um, or you're just prone to that just based on your anatomy, then definitely getting it bolstered totally makes sense, even though the literature um, is still early on. Yeah. Okay. I want to uh, ask you about the recovery between a bear and a traditional ACL replacement um, and like what that looks like in terms of timeline. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I would say that in general, the, at the, ACL is almost never the early rate limiting step. Almost all ACLs nowadays have concurrent meniscus tears that we just didn't used to appreciate. And that's probably why a lot of people that used to get ACLs done 
we're like, oh, I got my ACL and I eventually got arthritis. Well, I don't think it was necessarily because the ACL, although that was part of it, it was probably because of missed secondary injuries, which now we do a great job of recognizing. So first and foremost, the meniscus is probably going to drive your rehab more than anything. But let's say the exact same injury, a repair versus a reconstruction. The bear, you go much slower at first in terms of range of motion. There's a lot of range of motion restrictions because they don't want you to stretch out that newly done repair. But because it's a smaller incision uh, than any of your really harvest techniques, uh, and because therefore you're act, asking for less kind of new healing, you're not having to drill big bone tunnels. It's a little bit less of a morbid procedure. Patients tend to have a lot less pain uh, and, and are a little bit quicker to get some of their um, some of their uh, isometric quadricep strength back because their their leg doesn't shut down as much. Because again, you're not there's not as uh, as big of a initial event at the at the surgery that they need to recover from. So long-term though, they return to sport about the same. The main thing that's changing is the, is the first six weeks, a little slower on the range of motion, but less pain and a little bit quicker to get your strength back. I'd say with the repair. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I, I want to just emphasize this point. Notice Nick said a little bit slower on the range of motion. That doesn't mean don't do anything for six weeks and keep the knee locked out because having early range of motion is very important to prevent scar tissue from building. Because if you can imagine, if you try to keep it straight for that long, and then you try and bend it after six weeks, I mean, your leg feels super stiff after sitting in the car for four hours on a road trip. Imagine just doing that for a period of six weeks at a time, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. So um, definitely working within your tolerable limits of bending the knee um, and, and just allowing that range of motion, but not pushing it as Nick's talking about, I think is a key point there. Great. Usually the bear implant, uh, we can maybe share that uh, that rehab information with your patient population, uh, Greg, but usually they do something like zero to 45 degrees at first, and then they slowly phase you into zero to 90. So by six weeks, you're at 90 plus. So you're definitely right. The full extension for six weeks is how we were treating ACLs 40 years ago. And, and what we realized is patients did not like that and they get very stiff and your knee ends up pretty non-functional. Absolutely. Um, there's also a certain population that is actually able to get back to skiing without having their ACL repaired. And I will say like for the majority of people, maybe that aren't skiing super aggressive, maybe they're just skiing on piste. Uh, maybe they're not skiing uh, between trees and they're just skiing groomers. They're able to do this, but do you have any thoughts or considerations for specifically skiers um, that decide to not get their ACL replaced and maybe what implications that may have for them? Yeah. No, I, I, so for one, I mean, that's the nice thing about the field I picked. It's not your brain or your heart or your lungs. It's always elective surgery, right? And when what I've chosen. So I purely just educate people on what risk profiles look like, and then they've got to make the decision. And if they want to go with non-operative management of the majority of the injuries I see, I think that's reasonable as long as you know kind of what risk profiles are. So what we know from literature is that doing an ACL reconstruction versus non-operatively treating an ACL. The main difference is what's called secondary meniscal and chondral injuries, i.e. that instability, though you, you may feel it or you may not, has a higher risk of causing new meniscus or cartilage injuries. That doesn't mean it's guaranteed. That doesn't mean that if you get the surgery, you're not going to have any injuries. And if you don't, you are. It's just, it's a, it's a risk stratification. Um, if you were going to non-operatively treat an ACL, I usually recommendation-wise, I usually recommend anybody who has already a meniscus or cartilage injury not do that. Because if you already have some significant underlying injury, the thing that is important for the long-term health of your knee, i.e. having a pain-free knee as long as possible, is what your meniscus and your cartilage look like. So if you already have a big meniscus tear and no ACL, the likelihood is that that's going to get worse and worse and you're going to get early arthritis. If your meniscus and your cartilage look pristine and it's just an ACL tear, I think it's totally reasonable to work on, you know, dynamic stabilization, like a lot of the stuff you've been talking about, Greg. And I think they can get to a point where they may not feel that instability. And as long as they don't have a new meniscal or chondral injury, the long-term health of their knee is actually pretty good. So I think it more so to me is what else is going on in combination with the ACL? And then, you know, how, how willing and dedicated are you to get back those dynamic stabilizers to kind of help out? Because now that seatbelt that you used to have is no longer working. I love that. I love that analogy. All right, so we're almost done here. I just want to go over just some general post-op concern questions that some folks had. Um, and then, yeah, just to see what your thoughts are from a surgeon's perspective. So if someone is hoping to get back to skiing, what tips do you have for their first year back? Yeah, first year back to skiing? First year back to skiing, yeah. So say they're cleared to go back to skiing and now they're getting back to it and it's their first year. What, what advice or um, thoughts do you have for that individual? 
Yeah, I, I think I think for starters, continuing to do, you know, continue to work with uh, with therapists, right? So not not just saying, you know, you don't just pass a test and then never check your knowledge again, right? You think you you consistently work on the, the tools you've been given to stay at that level, if not to improve, because realistically, your strength and the maturity of the graph will continue to improve two years after surgery. Your max improvement after surgery, I almost always tell patients, is until two years. So continuing to work on those things. We did talk about this, you and I, the other day on Instagram, kind of a back and forth, is that uh, the data would say that a, gra- that a brace, excuse me, for the first season back to whatever sport you would do, football, basketball, baseball, and especially skiing, is probably a good idea. Again, is it necessary? Is it like if you don't wear it, you're going to tear your graph? No. But the data would say that you have a less uh, a, l- a less likelihood of having a re-rupture if you wear that brace. Now, uh, I know a lot of people have asked me like, okay, should I wear a brace, not wear a brace? And like like you said, the research is mixed. Um, ultimately, I think it comes down to patient preference and uh, like what the surgeon recommends. It, it kind of varies amongst who you're talking to. But for Team USA, when I worked with them, they keep their skiers in a brace for the first year um, and make sure that the skiers aren't getting airborne in that first year. But um, I know there's so many different types of brace options out there. Is there one specifically that you would recommend for sport, uh, specifically for skiing? Yeah. So, I mean, again, this is this is probably like a Pepsi versus Coke uh, question for the most part. But personally, uh, I think that an ACL brace that has some sort of a dynamic function, i.e. it's not just a rigid bar brace that doesn't seem to change based upon the forces applied, right? So it has some sort of an active engagement in protecting you. And there's really only two on the market uh, that I'm aware of or, or, or I come across uh, routinely, which is one from Oser called the Rebound ACL Brace, which is the one that I have an affinity for. Uh, and then there's also the Brig uh, Dynamic ACL Brace. Uh, those are just two companies that have them. Obviously, if you've ever turned on college football on Saturday, all the linemen are wearing ACL braces by Dondroy, which is called the Full Force, which is also a fine option. It just doesn't have that dynamic uh, component, which I think there's no uh, obvious evidence in the literature that says one is superior to the other. But in my mind, it makes sense to me that a brace that has a little bit more of an active role that, you know, engages when you need it and backs off a little bit when you don't uh, makes more sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then what about when we're talking about pain, like say the first time back skiing, or maybe as you're returning back to skiing from a surgeon's perspective, when would you say it's a good time to like stop skiing? Like when is pain a good thing versus when is pain a bad thing? Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 another billion dollar question. Um, depends on location for me. Uh, again, this could be very subjective, but for me, it depends on location. I think for the first long while after you have a patellar tendon graft, like you talked about, there's some anterior knee. I don't even know if I would call it pain, but it's discomfort and uh, it feels abnormal. And it may even feel a little abnormal for your whole life, but that first year it's definitely different. And so breaking up some of that scar tissue and getting used to this new normal that, that is soreness, that's mostly anterior in nature, I think is okay. But deep pain is almost always a, a, a red flag for me. If it's deep, if it's associated with mechanical symptoms like catching, popping, locking, for the most part is okay. You're going to pop crack, you know, snap crackle pop after surgery because of some scar tissue and some effusion. But if the catching and popping is causing pain, that's different. That's always something that you should stop and potentially go back and see your surgeon and see what's going on. Yeah. And I think that can be due to like load management as well. So maybe you got back into it too quickly. Yeah. Um, so just making sure you're, you know, you didn't injure the ligament in that process. Um, and then like we talked about earlier, sticking with your physical therapist, um, for that year to two years after surgery um, until the graft or the replacement has its full chance to fully heal. Um, okay, so a few more here. Um, say someone has limited range of motion into either flexion or extension. Say like it's almost there, but it, there's a notable difference between the uh, non-surgical to the surgical limb. How concerning is that for you? And is that something that is like, oh, we really need to push that in rehab in order to gain terminal knee extension or full flexion? Great question. I, I think that is completely dependent uh, on how the patient feels, but also what their other side is. And what I mean by that is there's really nothing in life that you need six centimeters of hyperextension or six degrees of extra extension for. Nothing. Those patients uh, almost never get that back after surgery. They end up a little stiffer and sometimes they don't like it, but I try and tell them I'd rather they be a little more stiff than they were because Part of the reason they tore their ACL is because they were like Gumby. They were too flexible. Uh, so, I mean, sometimes I'm purposely not trying to get that those last couple degrees of hyperextension. 
You definitely want to at least get to full extension because your ability to walk normally, ski normally, do anything active normally is completely limited by even five degrees of, of lack of extension. But once they get zero, I'm, I'm not really worried about pushing that hyper or that extra. Flexion wise, again, uh, kind of depends on what you want to do. I mean, a lot of patients will never notice if they get to 120, that's functional to 99% of life. Now your skiers doing aggressive moguls are probably a little bit of a, an exception to that rule. There may be times in particularly like deep powder days that you're getting deep into a squat. And so um, they may notice that. So it's, it's a little bit dependent. If they get to 120 plus, I'm pretty happy. But if they say, oh, you know, it's limiting me or they're, they're a power lifter or they're you know, some sort of a football lineman that has to get into a position that's more than that and they can't do it, then, then I'm obviously trying to push it. And sometimes we have to go back to the OR to get those last few degrees. Hmm. Yeah. And when you're in the OR, like what kind of procedure would you do to help get those last degrees? So usually in the sports world, it's something called uh, uh, debridement. Uh, so debridement or lysis of adhesions, meaning breaking up scar tissue and then bending the knee. It's just as simplistic as it sounds. If you've ever seen, you could probably Google uh, or YouTube a video of a patient doing an MUA. It's aggressive, like the, or excuse me, of a surgeon. I mean, we're bending the knee basically as hard as we can. And sometimes to get that little bit of extension, we're literally jumping on top of the knee while we're trying to straighten it out. So um, that scar tissue is um, aggressive, which is why, uh, we never do that within a certain time range because we want the graft and, and the stuff that we just spend all this time trying to fix mature enough that we don't then cause damage to that when we manipulate it. Yeah, that goes back kind of to the point that we were talking about earlier and early on range of motion and trying to not just be afraid of bending it because after surgery, they they go and test your knee and they bend it, make sure like your, your knee is able to bend and extend. Um, and not overly uh, aggressively flexing it, but making sure you're staying up with that. So that way you minimize scar tissue adhesions through that process. Yep. Yeah. All right. Last question here. Say someone is traveling overseas and then on the, in the unfortunate event, they either have like a ankle fracture or maybe a ligamentous fracture. Is there a time that they should wait before getting on the plane um, prior to flying home? And then ultimately a time to wait before getting surgery? Uh, I would say it's again, large, largely dependent on what we're dealing with. Uh, but you know, not almost nothing that's not, or anything that's not limb threatening or life threatening can wait. Technically, um, there are some bigger traumas that we've shown that the sooner you get them to reduced or at least preliminarily reduced, which is sometimes that means putting something called an external fixator on. If you have a really bad ankle fracture, they may need to put pins in different bones to basically hold the ankle out to length because it's completely, you know, for lack of a better word, dusted. Uh, so that's important. You don't want to fly home with a with a joint that is not reduced. But if you have a reduced joint uh, with a ligamentous or fracture, then it's reasonable to get on a plane when you can tolerate and when you've been cleared by the hospital. Uh, but almost always, because of because of your big injury, you're non weight bearing, which means your risk of a blood clot is higher in the air. And so I'd say the majority of us are recommending uh, some sort of anticoagulant when you fly, whether that's a little Lovenox shot uh, or aspirin or something to hopefully prevent you getting a blood clot when you're, when you're in the air on the way home. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, yeah, Nick, honestly, all super, super helpful information. I hope everyone listening here, if you had any injury um, and you're going through that process, or maybe in the future, if you're listening to this and that just happens to be you, hopefully coming back to this episode is going to just give you some insight on what are the best things to talk about with your surgeon and uh, to help you get the best outcomes to returning to the ski hill. Now, Nick, I just want to talk about um, a book that you've written, which is super cool. It's called The Knee Injury Bible. Um, can you kind of talk about the inspiration behind writing that? And then what can the readers expect if they get that book and, and what can they expect to learn from it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess, uh, selfishly, the inspiration behind it was a little bit my own experience. Um, so I, like I said, before med school, I had a semi-knee dislocation event where I tore my ACL and my, what's called my fibular collateral ligament, my medial collateral ligament and my meniscus and uh, which is why I missed out on good veil skiing. Um, and I just was kind of shocked by how little I knew slash how little you are really readily provided in terms of information that's digestible. I mean, I had a, my father's an orthopedic surgeon. I was living with an orthopedic surgeon at the time that did my surgery and one of the best surgeons in the world. And I still felt like I didn't have a lot of answers slash didn't understand a lot. And it's tough when you don't have a background in medicine to 
read things in a digestible manner. It would be like me trying to go purchase a car. I have no idea how to break down which car makes the most amount of sense fuel economy wise and, you know, electric hybrid, whatever. It's overwhelming, right? Well, so is medicine for people that don't have a background. So the book is meant to just try and in a fun and playful way, make uh, complex topics as digestible and understandable as possible and make you an educated consumer. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, for the listeners, I'll definitely link um, the purchase to see the book and, and to get it if they're interested in that. And then also all the kind of lingo that we talked about for the various procedures. Um, I'll link those down below, whether it's the bracing or specific intervention for um, type of the implants. Um, I'll link those down below. So that way you can look up those references and have more information if that is for you. Um, yeah, Nick, I just want to thank you again for coming on. On the one, and the one thing I wanted to leave, I think your audience with too, in terms of, because uh, there was a lot of really thought provoking and good questions today. And, and you heard me preface a lot of them with, in my opinion, or somewhat subjective. And I think that's uh, the most important take home you could take from all this is that there are some general accepted truths in the field of orthopedics, but there are definitely different opinions on almost every injury slash treatment profile. And so do not ever, ever hesitate to get a second opinion as a patient. Uh, and I'm sure Greg tells his patients the same thing, right? Is that if you are seeing some a provider, uh, you know, surgeon, PT, chiropractor, what, whatever, a male, woman, et cetera, um, that tries to tell you their way is the right way, no matter what, that's a red flag more than anything else, right? I'm, I'm never offended. In fact, I make recommendations for my patients to see other people and I try and I call the, the physician that they're wanting to see personally or send them an email because I want my patients to feel very comfortable with the plan we've come up with because it's their body, it's their plan. I'm simply just educating and then carrying forward what we've agreed upon together. So don't ever feel, don't ever hesitate. Don't ever feel bad at all asking for a second opinion. I think it's the best thing you can do. I love that. Yeah. Same thing for me. Like, you know, if you're coming to me and like you need more, more additional help, like that's not my role to try and um, like, it's not, it's not my job to try and like know everything. It's my job to know the best people that are going to help you get the results that you want. So if it means referring you to someone that is better than I am, um, I'm totally like trying to do that. That way you can continue to ski for a lifetime. Agreed. Awesome. Well, yeah, Nick, thanks so much for coming on the Legacy podcast. This is super fun catching up. Honestly, it's it's crazy just to nerd out about medicine in, in this kind of setting, but this is super fun. I love doing it and just like doing it with old friends and, and getting to talk about work in a fun way. Yeah, I agree. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Legacy Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your ski community and follow it so you don't miss another episode. Also, if you have a cool story and would like to be featured on the podcast, please reach out to the team. Lastly, if you're interested in working with me, you can book a strategy call at www.meettheskipt.com where I'll help you figure out the next best steps to keep you moving towards your journey of a lifetime of skiing.